you guys want to open to Deuteronomy 15, sorry about that, the voice of God there for a second. Deuteronomy 15 is where we're going to be, reading verses 1 through 11, actually, as we get started this morning. It begins, at the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan they've made to a fellow Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people, because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt your fellow Israelite owes you. However, there need be no poor people among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance. He will richly bless you. If only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I'm giving you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised, and you will lend to many nations but will borrow from none. You will rule over many nations, but none will rule over you. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts, is near. So that you do not show ill will toward the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. And then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open handed toward your fellow Israelites. Who are poor and needy in your land. The word of the Lord. Amen. I'm glad Jonathan introduced the series. If you haven't seen, uh, we've only done one other um, message within this series. You guys can go back and listen to that if you want to find that on the app or on the website. But really what all of this is about is, is what we, I've come to call a theology of place. This whole series is built around the notion of a place. And, and think about it this way. As a church, we have a theology of worship, what we understand worship to be, why it's important to us. We have a theology of scripture, what we believe about it. And it's equally important to have a theology of place. Sometimes that's lost on us. It's important for us to have an understanding of what it is we believe God is doing by planting us here in the city of Birmingham, this specific place we find ourselves in, and how he's calling us to be rooted in it, invested in it for the sake of his kingdom. That's something that sometimes is lost on us. Walter Brueggemann differentiates in a book he wrote in the 70s called The Land. He differentiates between what you would call space and what you would call place. Two different ways of, of viewing these sort of areas we live in, the cities or towns that we live in. This is what he says. Place is space which has historical meanings. 
where some things have happened which are now remembered and which provide continuity and identity across generations. A place is a space in which important words have been spoken, which have established identity, defined vocation, and envisioned destiny. Places a space in which vows have been exchanged, promises have been made, demands have been issued. And this is what he says. Place is indeed a protest against the unpromising pursuit of space. See, place is a, an area we find ourselves in that we view differently. It has an envisioned destiny. We all have this idea of where it is moving it has this continuity across generations. There's a rootedness to place. To have a more defined theology of place means we don't just choose to occupy some small space on Second Avenue. We choose instead to be rooted in this place, invested in this way. It means we, we understand there's an accountability and a responsibility that we bear within this city. What's happening, what has happened historically in our city, where ultimately our city is moving, we feel tied to. We feel accountable for it. It matters to us. And as you, you read Deuteronomy 15, you realize God's people were always a unique experiment. What you see happening in Deuteronomy is unique. God's people had been liberated from slavery in Egypt. It's amazing. They're no longer slaves. But at the end of the day, they still have nowhere to call home. And so God promises them this land. There's a land that he's promising them. But before they can move into that land, God is, is doing something else in the wilderness. He's establishing a way of life for them culturally. They would be a unique culture within this land that they were going to. They'd be marked by a peculiar and, and kind of unconventional way of life that none of the other cultures around them would have practiced. And they were to see this land that they were going to live in as something more than just a, a space that they occupied. It was more than a commodity they had acquired. The land was more. You see that. They're supposed to care for the land. They're responsible for this place God has planted them. And they're responsible for all of the people who might enter into that land. It's, it's unique the way they see things. It was a nation and a land and a city, ultimately Zion, Jerusalem, that was built around a deep concern for the other, for the neighbor, even for the foreigner. Even the fugitive on the run finds a safe haven among these people. It's interesting. And the challenge, I think, for us as we consider a, a theology of place in Birmingham is to consider how we as a church are marked as a peculiar culture within the midst of Birmingham. What does that look like for us? How do we develop this theology of place, really root ourselves here, seeking the good of the city rather than just choosing to occupy space here? The people of Israel were unique in ways I don't think we fully understand. They were progressive even for our day. They would have been unique in our modern society. They have defined so much of, of how we do things, but they were even more progressive 
than I think we are most of the time. One of their defining characteristics as God's people was their approach to poverty. And that's what you're seeing in Deuteronomy 15. Every seven years, and you're probably familiar with this, this seven-year pattern. You've seen it in the Old Testament. They're supposed to be forgiving debts, erasing debts, letting go of debts. Which would amount to this consistent restructuring of wealth every seven years. Over and over again, it's happening. Money is shifting. Wealth and poverty is changing every seven years. It's not something any other culture around them was doing, and it's probably not something any culture wanted to do. It's not something we as as humans are really kind of comfortable with. It it bothers us, this very notion. And it, it made Israel distinct among all these other nations. They were different. If you look at this passage, for me, there, there, there are two different things that really stand out. Verse 4, God is essentially guaranteeing that poverty won't be an issue. He says, however, there need be no poor people among you. He's essentially writing off poverty, right? It won't be an issue. That's, that's something that's hard for us to even begin to imagine. Poverty's always an issue. We don't know of a nation where poverty is not an issue at some level. And it's especially confounding because then you read verse 11. You go further down and we read, There will always be poor people in the land. So either poverty won't be an issue or it will always be an issue. And the thing that we come back to, if we read the passage carefully, I think sometimes we kind of go, well, which is it? Is it an issue or is it not going to be an issue? Is it always going to be an issue? Like, where are we at? But if if you notice, God doesn't say poverty will never happen. That's not what he's getting at. There need be no poor among you does not mean poverty will never happen. He doesn't say poor people will just disappear from the land of Israel. Nor, in, in verse 11, is he saying that poverty can't be fixed. Or is he saying that That poor people will always stay poor. He doesn't say that. Instead, he's saying there will always be situations and circumstances that impoverish people. There will always be these kinds of circumstances that arise. And therefore, there will always be poor. And there will always be opportunities for us to meet the needs of the poor. That will always be the case. In verse 4, what he's saying when he says that There need be no poverty in the land. He's saying that when we do see poverty, it doesn't have to be a permanent state. It doesn't have to be this defining characteristic of someone. It doesn't have to define the rest of their lives. That circumstance that brought them into that, it doesn't have to perpetuate itself. Poverty doesn't have to be systemic or hopeless like we so often see within our culture. He's saying you will inevitably see poverty doesn't have to be permanent and the whole solution that he's offering Moses is is preaching this sermon to the people before they go into the land his whole solution is generosity he's keeping it very simplistic he says in essence you're going to do what God has called you to do you're going to do the things he's commanded you as a result God's going to bless you God's going to be generous with you as a result and you are going to become more generous in turn God will be generous, and you will become more generous. This will happen. 
So as poverty inevitably arises, it will be alleviated by generosity. It's amazingly simple, right? This is the solution he's offering. It's simple, and yet somehow we're still not getting it right. The next thing you can't miss is, is the warning. Verses 7 and 8, you get this command. You could call it an invitation if you want to. Whatever it is, God is pushing them with this imperative to generosity. It's an encouragement to be open-handed. It's literal language in Hebrew. He says, keep your hands open to the poor. Don't withdraw your hands. Don't be closed-fisted. Be open-handed. Right? It's very literal language that he's using. Verse 11, you have the same thing. An invitation to be open-handed. You must be open-handed. But right in between those things, you have this word of caution. There's a warning in the passage that Moses is giving them. It's kind of drilling down into the propensity that we have as humans to be greedy, to be stingy, to withhold things. And I think it's really interesting because normally when we think about poverty, when we think about the poor, the first thought that enters into our minds in those moments, we begin to psychoanalyze these people. We begin to think about their personal choices. We begin to think about their sins, their mistakes, the things in their lives that are perpetuating their poverty. We initially go there. It's, it, it just happens. We can't even control it. We see them flying a sign on the side of the road. We hear them tell the story that they told us last month about being broken down and stranded. And we're kind of like, God, I've heard the story before. I know the deal. And immediately we're kind of going, our mind goes there. What mistake, what addiction, what sin, what issue exists that perpetuates poverty in this person's life. Moses, on the other hand, wants to draw attention to our sin. He's warning us. He doesn't want to talk about the issues of the poor person. He wants to talk about our issues. It's amazing. In essence, he's saying our assumption shouldn't be of their mistakes or their sins or their issues. It should be of our own. That's a possibility as well in these moments. There's this thing that can happen. He's saying, be careful. Not just to be generous in this seven-year cycle. Don't just be generous when you know you've got plenty of years left to get your money back. Don't choose to loan to someone when you know it's most advantageous, when you stand to lose the least, when it's the most convenient to you, because he knows this is where the minds of these people are going to go. Don't. Just be generous when it's convenient. And here's the whole rationale. Over and over again. He, he keeps using this language of brother. Now, you didn't see it in our translation. He uses the word brother four different times. And in order to create more gender-inclusive language, I think they've used the translation fellow Israelites. It's helpful in some ways. It's not so helpful in this way. Because brother is family language. That's helpful here, right? Because, again, generally we think about poverty, we think of poverty as like a societal issue, right? When we see oppression, when we see these kinds of, of issues, when we see the marginalized, we think this is a society issue. This is a, a cultural issue, and therefore, it's an issue for programs to deal with. It's an issue for the government to deal with. Moses says poverty is not a societal issue. It's a family issue. And the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized who we encounter, who we find in these scenarios, their brother, their sister, 
their family in this way. And for the Israelites, I think that was especially poignant because the Israelites of all people knew what it was to be oppressed. They knew what it was to be poor. They knew what it was to be slaves, right? They knew what it is to live open-handed. Their palms were always up, especially in the wilderness, right? They were so needy, constantly with their hands open to God, asking that he would provide for their needs. And all Moses is saying is, keep your hands open. Don't close them. Don't withdraw them. Keep your hands open. Open to receive God's gifts, God's kindness, God's provision, and open to offer it to those who find themselves in need as well. This is the picture that he's giving us. Open your hands. Don't close them. Become more generous. As God is generous to you, become more and more generous to those who are in need. Learn generosity in this way. As you look into the life of of Israel, it's clear that God is doing something different here. He's purposely choosing to do something unique. He's creating a people for himself exclusively. And this whole society is engineered around one thing. They are to reveal what he is like. These people are God's people and they will reveal his characteristics, what he's like, how he's marked. They are engineered to reveal God's mercy. That's who Israel is. Zion was to be a a safe haven for the poor and the oppressed, a city marked by its concern for the other, for the least among them. This is who they were. At least that's who they were supposed to be, right? Because as much as we want to romanticize Israel, as much as we romanticize the early church, history shows us a disturbing pattern of Israel and God's people in general ignoring all of this. One of my professors said, and it shocked me, he's like, yeah, Jubilee's amazing, but I don't think Israel ever actually did it. This notion of forgiving debts, it's amazing, right? Poverty could be taken care of so simply, but they never did it, most likely. They never really gave themselves to it. That's what the prophets held against them. That's what we're seeing. The prophets are so angry. God is so frustrated that his people are not revealing his generosity, his mercy, And we find ourselves in a different city with its own tragic pattern, its own tragic history of ignoring these possibilities. Birmingham is a a city that was engineered for its own purpose. And the more and more I, I read about it, pretty much exclusively that purpose was profit. If you, if you look at, at Birmingham, it was built for one reason. You may know the story. The story goes, a man by the name of John Milner is, is standing on Red Mountain. He's looking down into this valley. There are settlers. There's this burgeoning steel industry that's developing. And he sees all of it happening. It's amazing in some sense. But he knows the city still needs something. It's not a city yet, excuse me. He knows to bring it all together, they need the railroads. And he realizes as he's looking at it, if the railroads were to come to Birmingham, something amazing would happen, right? And as one of his friends famously said, a magic city could spring up. That's where it all comes from. It was going to be like magic. The railroads come to town, we start producing steel, it's going to be like magic. But here's the problem. Any of us, whether you're 
from here or not, we don't normally think of Birmingham as a magical experience. It's interesting to think about all of this. Because it was built for profit, there were a whole lot of things that were ignored along the way. The cost of some of these decisions that were being made was never taken seriously. So what, what made for a, a less than magical experience in the magic city was a complex of factors. It gets complicated. For starters, it was complicated in the same way it was complicated all over the South during Reconstruction. Reconstruction was tense. At the beginning, it was amazing for slaves who had been freed, but then everything got turned upside down. And there was a tension that existed all over the South between slaves who had been freed, who were now full citizens, who had the right to vote, who were living alongside white people who weren't so sure what they thought about it. They didn't know what to do with all of this. And some of them were ardently opposed to it. There's a tension already, just that. But beyond that, on top of that, Birmingham had a labor issue from its earliest days. There was a problem Despite all of these incredible businesses that were being born here, there was a problem. Our city, you may not know this, was, was largely built thanks to contributions from what we call the, the convict leasing programs of the day. Maybe you're familiar with convict leasing programs, maybe you're not. What it means at the simplest level is the state of Alabama would say to a company here in Birmingham, a local business, we have convicts, you need cheap labor. We'll make a contract with you and you can have free laborers essentially. The cheapest kind of labor you can imagine. It's great for the state because those businesses pay them for those prisoners that they're taking care of, right? It's money in the pocket of the state. It's money in the pocket of the business that's saving. They have the cheapest labor they can imagine, but it's a nightmare for the convict who's caught in the middle of all of this, maybe for a pretty small crime, pretty insignificant stuff. And some people have said that convict leasing was worse than slavery. Why? Because if you don't view these people as property, if they're not your investment, you don't have to take care of them. And so people died in the same kind of numbers in convict leasing programs that they did under slavery. You don't have to take care of these people. You could work them even harder. They were just prisoners. They were a lower life form. So you got that tension, right? Forget all of, of, of the problems with that. And just think about the labor implications. You got all these people moving to a new city. They want good jobs with good wages. And they're going to employers who are like, I hear you, but I got access to real cheap labor. I don't so much need to pay you well because I can pay these people. They do the same job. So there's a tension between these companies and all these people who want decent jobs, right? And Birmingham becomes a mess. You have this tension building from the earliest days. Naturally, our system of education, people in Birmingham know that the, the city school system is, is a bit of a mess. Education's never been a priority here. It's always been a mess. Why? Because most of the people were poor. Many of those convicts that came here to work stuck around afterward. Some of them weren't the best kind of people. Crime continued to rise. Birmingham is one of many cities that claimed to be the, the murder capital of the world for a long time. A lot of cities have claimed that title. Birmingham kept it for a long time, apparently. One of my favorite stories is of a there's a, a black man who lives in Chicago, and he has a dream one night. And in the dream, Jesus is calling him to move to Birmingham. 
and he wakes up the next morning. He's hyped. He's excited. And he goes and he tells his wife the news. Baby, Jesus has called us to move to Birmingham. We're going to Birmingham. And she looks at him and she says, Jesus say he's going to go with you? <laughs> and he looks at her and he replies, well, he said he'd go as far as Memphis. <laughs> like, like Birmingham had this reputation. There was a tension that was always there beneath the surface. You have these unsatisfied workers. You've got these dehumanized convicts being leased out and abused. You have a steel industry which is trying to survive, which eventually collapses. Roosevelt famously called Birmingham the hardest-hit city in the Great Depression. I didn't know that. I had no idea. The hardest-hit city. That's straight from the mouth, uh, the mouth of, uh, of Roosevelt. And so inevitably, what's interesting is, is like the Communist Party saw Birmingham as symbolic. They saw Birmingham as an opportunity. Obviously, at the time, that's, a, that's an issue. This is the beginning of the Cold War. All of that is starting. That, that tension is beginning to build during all of those years. And the Communist Party sees African Americans in general, but cities like Birmingham, as an opportunity. They're going to protect the workers. They're going to take care of workers. So they come to the city of Birmingham. Obviously, Americans aren't comfortable with this. People in Birmingham aren't comfortable with this. There's a tension, right? Unions see Birmingham as an opportunity, right? Here are oppressed workers, and we have to go and unionize. We have to protect them. You, these anti-union activists as well start to see Birmingham as an opportunity, right? Long before the civil rights movement as we normally think of it starts, protest has a rich tradition in Birmingham. It's just been going on and on and on. There's a tension in Birmingham. It's defined Birmingham. Birmingham became like a, a literal battleground. One of the parks in Bessemer is named after a guy named DeBarta Laban. Maybe you're familiar. He owned some of the steel industry in Birmingham. He was famous for hiring workers with machine guns. He planted bombs around the property. He did everything he could to keep people from being able to unionize. He didn't want any of that organizing of unions to happen. He didn't want that movement to gain root here. It's crazy to think about that kind of violence. And it was happening on both sides. Again, there was a tension from both sides. Long before the civil rights movement ever comes here, that was happening. And so when Fred Shuttlesworth and other pastors locally start talking about the civil rights issues that exist in Birmingham, when they start to protest, guess what happens? The same tactics that were being used for all those years prior are now being employed on children in the streets. Violence is just the status quo. You think, why? Why would they be so violent? Why would they, they go there? Because change is not necessarily good for profit margins. This is a city built for profit. Whether it's civil rights or workers' rights or whatever, it's not always good for business. And Birmingham is a story of that. Well, if it's not good for business, then we don't, we don't really want to do it. If you dig deeper, you begin to realize... Profits were pretty well the, the biggest priority in Birmingham for such a long time. And that's because another little circumstance of all of this is the people who eventually owned everything in Birmingham didn't live in Birmingham. All these businesses, these steel industries that started in, in Birmingham, all this stuff that was happening, coal industry, steel industry, all these iron companies popping up left and right, all these mining operations, 
They started here, but ultimately they would consolidate and then be bought out by these national corporations that were much bigger. J.P. Morgan, these kind of figures are making these purchases. That's where U.S. Steel comes from, right? Here's the problem with that. They're making all these purchases and all these decisions, and they could care less how it's affecting things on the ground here because it's not their community, it's not their family that's going to suffer the consequences or feel the effects. Birmingham has this long tradition of no roots, no investment, no sense of place. It's just a, a space we can use to produce more. It, it's a space that we can utilize for our gain. And this is the way we see it. This is where we get lost. Birmingham has never moved beyond seeing things as space and into seeing things as place. Space, I just see as this, this, this geographical area I am occupying for a temporary amount of time. I can use it for my own gain, my own advantage, my own pleasure. But ultimately, this is just the place or the space I, I presently occupy. This sense of place, though, requires me to put roots down, to make decisions that are beyond just my own good, my own profits. And the issues we still see in our city today are, are largely due to that. It's easy to get cynical, I think, as you, you think about all these things, especially for us. We're kind of going, we didn't make this problem. This was handed down to us. So what are we going to do with it? And the church is, is full of history like that, of, of stories of Christian people who just become apathetic or cynical. But it's not always that way. It doesn't always happen that way. I was thinking about it this week, like one of the more memorable landmarks in downtown Birmingham is on the south side. You got that, that weird statue in front of the Methodist church with Pan and, and, and the crew listening to their story. That's strange. You guys have to check that out. But right across the way from there, you got this guy, Brother Brian, Presbyterian pastor. People say he did more in Birmingham for the homeless than anybody before or after. There's still a mission in downtown Birmingham with his name on it. He spoke out against racism. He spoke for, for racial reconciliation in like the 30s and the 40s. Long before this was like a national conversation, this guy was engaged with the city at this level. He was rooted in this way. Think about hospitals. You think of downtown Birmingham, you can't help but think of UAB. But before UAB... Every hospital in Birmingham was connected to a church or a denomination. Healthcare, as we know it in Birmingham, was all tied to believing people rooted here who recognized there was a need and were stepping into it. Our city's history has lots of stories of the church's complacency or complicity in terrible things, the church's failure to intervene, but it also has these stories. The church choosing to be a people who are rooted, invested, who have a sense of place here that's deeper than just what they can gain from it. And I, I think, the, again, the, the whole point of this series is that we would begin to consider these things. We want to keep this ongoing. We want this to be happening more than just once for a couple of months and then we move on from it. We want to continue to have this conversation about what it looks like for us to see Birmingham through the lens of the kingdom of God. And it requires more than just a sermon. 
It requires more than me or Jonathan standing up here and, 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 and musing about possibilities. It requires an imaginative capacity that I think the church just hasn't always had. There's something the church is just lacking. When it comes to these sorts of issues, we just lack imagination. We lack the ability to see our city as anything other than what it has always been. And we can see what our city is, and we can see some of the things that are happening in the present moment and be satisfied with it. We can be satisfied with renovations and new businesses. It's cool to watch some of these things happen, right? All these things that make us feel like change is happening, that give the appearance that change is happening, and we can ignore the facade and what's really behind it. We can miss it. There's so much happening. We can get excited about things, like a new restaurant. We can get excited about entertainment opportunities coming to Birmingham, another brewery. We get excited about these things. Let's be honest. Like, how do we envision beyond the gentrifying efforts of the present moment? How do we go beyond that stuff? And I think that's, that's one of the beautiful things about this season that's ahead of us. The painful thing about this season is it feels like we're having to start all over. The amazing thing about this season is we get to start all over. And I, it gives us an opportunity to, like, approach the city differently, to see our city differently, to start considering what does this actually look like? How do we develop a more defined theology of place and move beyond seeing Birmingham as just gentrifying space. This isn't just space where you can make profit, space where you can better yourself. How do we move beyond that into Birmingham as this place we're rooted in, that we're invested in, that we're giving ourselves to completely? It requires imagination, and I think it means praying about it more than today in this service. I think it means us giving ourselves really to this process. Where is Jesus calling us to in this city? And how are we not so cynical about it that we refuse to go when that comes, right? What does it look like for us to do that? Utilize imagination. Give yourself to this. Let your mind wander into these places. Let God take you to these places. That's the hope in these days. There are opportunities. And as the band comes and... And as we worship today and we come to the table, I think it begins in these moments. We want this to be the beginning of this ongoing conversation. For us to take seriously, what does it look like to engage the city? Let's pray God will, will kind of make clear what all of this is supposed to look like. How we're going to do this in a new season, in the life of our church, in the life of the city. What's it all going to look like? As we're remembering where our city has been, what does it look like for us to consider where it's going? Like, what's happening within it? How do we choose to be rooted and invested here? Like, take this seriously. Consider it. Pray about it. Whatever ideas might come to mind. Poor Graham. He's struggling. He's going to hang on his neck the whole time. But yeah, we invite you guys to pray with us. Uh, we're going to move into our time of communion.
And I think communion is a, a particularly good time to kind of consecrate ourselves, to give ourselves in this way to these things. This always happens to me. I'm going to shamelessly use my teeth. Anybody else have to use their teeth to open these? I do sometimes. Listen, you guys, you guys pray for baby Graham as well during these moments. I invite you. No, I'm just kidding. He does love Drew. There's no question. If you guys ever doubted it, he loves his father. This is the body of Christ, broken for you. Take and eat. This is the blood of Christ, poured out for the sins of many. Take and drink. Amen. Father, we just ask in these moments that you would just kind of direct us. And we pray you'd, you'd help us to be able to dream for our city, for our church, in days where it feels like it's, it's been a while. It, it's been 15 months since we really gave ourselves to something like that. Maybe it's been longer. God, would you help us? Would you direct our path? Would you show us, Jesus, where it is you're leading us to? Would we become your body in this city? Would we give shape? Would we put skin and flesh on your word? Would we bring the, the characteristics, the ethic of the kingdom to life in our lives and how we approach this city? God, enable us to do this well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.